not everybody gets a grant, but actually the things are changing a little bit. I think at the moment it's kind of more bonkers because there's nowhere to show anything because everything's closed as these rolling kind of lockdowns happen. And then last year I was, I had a big exhibition year with lots of dates to do things and ended up, you know, with stuff stuck on walls for several months on lockdown. And that continues to this very day. <laughs> Hello and welcome to our new episode of Carpe Diem from your host Luca Rocchini. Today's guest is Irish visual artist Alan Phelan from Dublin, Ireland. Alan uh, studied at Dublin City University and New York's Rochester Institute of Technology and his practice began in photography. Alan's work is realized in numerous ways including sculpture, film, museum interventions, public art, as well as collaboration with other artists, writers and curators. This all inform, combine and contribute to an interest in the narrative potential surrounding an artwork. This can be exploited or explored from actual and historical events, ideas, things and places as well as their fictional counterparts. For the past 25 years he has exhibited his work all around the world. We're going to have a chat about his career as an artist, his latest projects and exhibitions. Hello, Alan. Thanks for being with us. Hi, How are you? Hi Luca. Great, thanks. <laughs> cool. Let's, let's start talking about maybe about your background. Um, what what in, ignite your interest in the arts? Oh, I don't know. Lots of things. Just being a sort of slightly creative kid. And uh, I did my undergraduate in, in communication studies, but I had actually tried to get into art college and failed. But uh, I actually had a very poor art education in secondary school, so I just didn't have any kind of way of, of getting a good portfolio together, really, even though I kind of wanted to do that. But uh, communication studies was uh, in DCU was a really fantastic program. Still is really good, of course. Uh, but at the end of the eighties, when I was there, they had just really um, got rather ignited by the burgeoning field of of cultural studies. So it was one of the few universities in the country that was teaching this whole new area of cultural studies, which was basically just a multidisciplinary approach to a, an arts education. So we had everything from contemporary philosophy through to uh, Ronald Barth and Raymond Williams and so Foucault and Derrida and all these different people. So it was a really broad uh, analytical way of, of understanding image culture and, and visual uh, uh, and cinema and film studies and television studies. So that was my background as part of the course they allowed a photography thesis so you could do a visual thesis which I chose to do and that's how I ended up with this kind of photography concentration that then led me on to applying to do a master's in photography and through various you know in very various reasons I ended up in the states in, in upstate New York in Rochester doing this master's in imaging arts which uh, was basically just a, a way of, of describing a, a broader way of understanding photography, which was actually kind of great as well. 
And uh, and and what what can you tell us about uh, the time and where you were studying in Dublin and in and in New York? Well, uh, they were quite different. What was great about uh, DCU is that it gave me a strong theoretical foundation, um, and obviously it a, a kind of a minimal practical uh, experience. So when I went to the states. I got to flip the normal master's um, expectations that students have in that people return to do a master's to sort of upgrade their theory and, and expand on their existing practice. Whereas I was just, I had all the theory down. That was fine. That was no problem to me. Uh, that was all interesting and it contributed towards what I was doing. But I really wanted to know more about the practical side of photography. So RIT is kind of a, an extraordinarily large photography school and it's in the land of Kodak, um, and it had like a thousand undergraduate students. So this massive facility, a huge amount of shooting studios and dark rooms. Like as a as a graduate student, I had my own black and white dark room, personally, which I was supposed to share with somebody, but they never used it. And I had my own color dark room. Wow! So it was kind of really spoiled for facilities, and then. You, there was like 50 shooting studios, which, which each had a Sinar 4x5 camera, you know, and, and a full set of uh, uh, flash equipment and all the studio backdrops. So anyway, amazing facilities. Upstate New York is a very difficult place to, to, to actually be inspired by uh, in terms of photographically because it's snowy there for six months of the year. So you're kind of trapped inside so that's why there's maybe so many shooting studios. But it sort of then gets you thinking about photography in a different way. And mm. uh, I think as a master's program, I was in a very lucky kind of uh, point in, the, in, in terms of tutors because there was a various um, people on sabbaticals and they quite randomly accumulated a bunch of people who came from California. And the photography scene between the two, West Coast and East Coast kind of thing in America is quite different. So on the West Coast in California, you've got this tradition of Baldessari, a more conceptual approach to photography. Um, there's a little bit of the Ansel Adams, of course, because that's sort of, you know, the Southwest. But really, it was more of conceptual. And then the East Coast in photography in Rochester was known really as a very technical school. So, you know, it's a it's an institute of technology. So it wasn't prime art school stuff you've got more of an approach towards the technical side so uh it had a very traditional foundation that kind of got broken up while i was there with an influx of all these new heads and, and these great kind of different minds so it, some of my classmates ended up making paintings for their graduate shows and not doing photography at all so it was really broad i actually did do a photography uh, project through uh, Photoshop, actually, Photoshop version 1.5 was very basic. I kind of went through some of the files recently, and they're all microscopic. You know, but I was making uh, collages that of um, of uh, scenes from tourist books that then um, I got written onto 35 millimeter slides, and then used those to make negatives to make big mural prints. So there, the process of going through the different analog through digital kind of phases made them quite mushy and relatively believable. They weren't that believable. I picked up these uh, tourist images, tourist kind of photo books when I was, I did an internship with uh, George Lucas in, in California uh, in my, at the end of my first year. Uh, and I did, I interned for, on, a, on a project with their games, sort of multimedia area. 
But we got to work with George Lucas, which is very exciting. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of interesting working with one of those big film egos. It was just like the biggest turn off ever because he was really uh, rather a dictatorial director type and he knew best and he was definitely in charge of everything and he kind of ruled. But it, so it wasn't a very pleasant experience, but a great experience uh, to, to have gone through. Anyway, he has an amazing library. There was this incredible 19th century book of tourist photographs that I uh, copied uh, photographically, made slides of, and then used them to make these collage backgrounds for this project for my thesis. So, um, and is any particular artist that kind of inspired you at the beginning? Were you inspired? Oh, I don't know. There were so many. I was looking at a lot of... And there was a, I kind of, it, it was the beginning of a... I think within photography, there's a, a, an awful lot of discussion that is never ending about fact and fiction. So uh, that sort of continues in my work to this very day in terms of using his, some sort of historical information and then turning it around a bit. So at that particular point, even in the mid early 90s, 1994, and 1992, 94, I was still interested in how, in not fooling people by creating these fictional alternatives that are creating a kind of preposterous situation. So like, for example, the project that I did for my master's was about the fictional, kind of the, the, the visits of Egon Schiele, the Austrian expressionist artist, to Ireland for inspiration from our primitive Celtic uh, artifacts called Schielinigigs, which are these fertility female sil sim, um, carvings over churches that are, and so I was really interested in a particular discussion in the States at the time about difference and sameness and race and and uh, ethnography and anthropology and there was a, quite a strong kind of a analytical discussion about like the roots of primitive art and how that kind of fed into Western the Western art tradition, so you've got that kind of early exploration of African artifacts and how that was sort of stolen. So that conversation continues to this day. It's all just differently languaged now in terms of decolonizing the West and stuff. So that conversation, I kind of paralleled that particular discussion of Western artists using African by citing Ireland as a primitive culture and how you had this sophisticated Austrian expressionist painter come to Ireland and look at these sexualized uh, fertility symbols and they inspired him uh, to masturbate <laughs> <laughs> and do all these self-portraits of himself masturbating which are his most notorious works so it was uh, it might sound rather ridiculous and it, it wasn't very sexual because that kind of those drawings are very much acceptable and romanticized and not sensational at all anymore really so um what i did with the, the project was i created a whole bunch of photo montages of him in ireland through these tourist photographs in the 19th century and then created a, a, a few different arrangements or installations of these works in various places uh, which kind of mimicked the the introductory uh, areas of a museum where you're where there's like a, a foyer before a large retrospective exhibition of an artist where they have a few biographical photos and cabinets of information of personal photographs and artifacts so i kind of recreated that so it was the biographical information without the art and that was what i was kind of interested in kind of tapping into because that's the 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 real information um 
But again, it was sort of quite fantastical, fantastic or farcical. So I wasn't trying really to fool anybody, but still going to put a light on it. Um, so it, it was it was rather farcical, but still what is fascinating about photography is that people tend to believe what they see. So I constantly had to tell people, yeah, Egon Sheila never went to Ireland. He went because he saw Sheila in the gigs and they sounded like Egon Sheila. It's a, it's a homomen, you know, it's just, it's a rhyme. They sound the similar, it's a narcissistic project where he's finding something that he references back to himself. And it's sort of really explaining or kind of, you know, dealing with what art's about as this sort of self-directed, self-obsessive conversation with yourself and art history as an artist, which is, you know, maybe, a little, again, a little bit bleak, but sometimes being as negatively, nihilistically reductive like that kind of can explain a lot as to how things happen. <laughs> but anyway. And, and what was, um, why you first attract to photography compared with other arts at the beginning? I just fell into it. Um, I'm not quite sure. I kind of, I think I liked the, I always liked the darkroom work and I liked the, I think the, the sense of control that you had as an individual on the process. So within my media options, when I was doing my undergrad, it's like video and radio magazine work and photography. And, and they all, the other you know, media require team efforts. And there was always, you know, you had to depend on other people, whereas this is more independent. And, and I'm not going to say it's all about self-expression, but I was able to experiment more. And I did a lot of, I mean, it, experimenting in the darkroom and, and setups and funny little kind of setups with my brothers and sisters and stuff like that. And, and my thesis in, in undergrad was all about the seven deadly sins. So it was very much like an art process. I took four different approaches to photographing the same thematic. So it was, uh, and at that time, I, you know, it's really funny. I was using the word experimental a lot because I was experimenting with the technique and trying it out. So, but at the same time, all those team projects kind of served well for my future work in film, especially with you and other people and, and understanding how a crew works and how a crew has to function together. Um, and I think that, you know, the directing side of thing, I kind of totally made up on the hoof, uh, but that's another story for maybe a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's interesting about uh, the, the photography because I, I went to the opposite, you know, studying photography and then I like the collaboration. Actually, I feel I felt too lonely in the dark. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny because when I was in, in, because it's long, cold winters in Rochester, I literally was all winter in the dark room. I did, before I discovered Photoshop, I was doing all these collages through uh, lith films and masking, and it took hours and hours for all the alignment and to create patches within a photography kind of piece of paper to, to make these different layers and all that kind of stuff. So I was making all these, you know, supremely analog crude collages before I discovered that you could do it all within seconds on screen. So that changed everything. But then I kind of made it complicated by reverting back to the analog and making prints because at that time as well in the in the early 90s there was really very few options for output there was lots of of these amazing color machines for printing out stuff but they were all like really really disposable they were all they all kind of disappeared once you one fingerprint destroyed the image 
And so when I was finishing up in Rochester, they had, they had just really, Kodak was experimenting with the lentic with the, um, the light valve printing with the lambda prints and stuff. So they had resolved to kind of go back and use the old color photography print technology because the new kind of inkjet stuff was just wasn't um wasn't permanent at all uh that's all been resolved now of course and color photography and c printing has more or less died but um at that point i went through this kind of crazy you know reverse engineering back into these big gigantic bromide mural prints because that was the only way to get a decently sized large image and then you work on a variety of arts, film sculptures, public art, social media, which I think that together with your research of kind of a, a typical or kind of long forgotten sub subject makes your work quite unique. Um, what can you tell us about uh, is this evolution and the amalgamation of media and historical facts and what is the process you use to expand upon a subject using different type of arts uh, well I guess if I I can I wanted to start with the first project that we worked on together which is the include me out of the partisans manifesto because that was basically like the culmination of lots of small video projects that I had done over the years where it's sort of like everything from just turning the camera on and letting it run for 20 minutes or small narrative projects um, that didn't really make it to exhibition. They were kind of attempts at doing stuff, but not really properly. So I, I'd kind of, right before we worked together, I had done a test run of a film on a residency in Helsinki. Um, but, and that was a really good trial for just like trying to remember how the process works. And, and that was on a zero budget kind of scenario where I was just borrowing equipment and people from the residency and shooting in this underground car park with actors over the day and having no battery power and drinking coffee for most of the day, waiting for them to recharge and going through all those disasters. And also then going through the other disaster of working with three levels of actors where you've got the professional, the amateur, and then the deluded student who thinks they can act and having an absolute nightmare trying to edit three together afterwards where there's just such an inconsistency of performance <laughs> that the whole project is ruined basically. So I ended up editing that project into a, a multi-screen video installation and separating everything out and hopefully distracting people by different shots <laughs> to try and kind of map out some kind of a, a visual project. But for the Include Me Out project with the, the film, um, that kind of set a, a particular pattern of practice or, or way of working, uh, which was really interesting. So that came out of a... Of a solo exhibition that I did in the Irish Museum of Modern Art, which is curated by Sean Kassan, and uh, it travelled on to Chapter in Wales. And Hannah Firth uh, from Chapter suggested this guy called Tony White uh, for a catalogue essay, because I was asking everybody, you know, what do you think, who do you think would suit me? So he was a really interesting writer who had worked with a lot of artists, and he's written a, a bunch of novels as well, but really interesting in the way that he approaches writing. He it might it sounds rather uh, ridiculous when I say that he uses a lot of non-fictional reference points and then fictionalizes them. But actually, what he does is he does he re-narrativizes the non-fiction, in that he f he sets some very fixed points of reference and then creates a story around those references. And it's 
he's kind of developed that further in other books. It's a kind of form of mandated writing or constrained vocabulary techniques where you've got, you, you set yourself a bunch of crazy rules and you fix to them, and you, or you fix, or you, you keep to them, and then from around that a rather peculiar narrative emerges. So uh, as a writer hired to write a catalogue essay, it was a, the show in Emma was called Fragile Absolutes and it was quite a broad kind of look at about five years of, of production that included a sculpture that was made in Serbia and then a bunch of paper mache sculptures that I'd been making over the previous years. And the ideas kind of were, there's a bunch of different ideas that happened across the project. Um, what he did was pick a few points and then wrote this kind of odd story about a, a, a couple having an argument about recycling, about throwing out their the DVDs that they had already seen. And it kind of mapped out, you know, in a parallel kind of way, the way I think and the way I work, uh, without being super specific. Because there's nothing worse, I guess, than these sort of really laudatory kind of catalogue essays where the writer is just explaining how amazing the artist is. Uh, they're like really tedious. So this was, again, as part of a, which is a, a, a different approach to critical writing, which is quite, you know, it's gotten more popular. There's a certain kind of stronger strand in critical writing now, which uses more uh, fictional or literary devices to discuss art rather than just being descriptive or engaging in a whole bunch of theoretical kind of mumbo-jumbo language, which is cool, but it just becomes a bit boring after a while. Um, so there was two texts in that. There was another uh, text in that book um, by Maeve Rowan, who's a psychotherapist, which was the, the precursor. I took one section of that to do the trial in Helsinki. But the Tony White text I worked with over, you know, about a year and a half to kind of develop his story into a script and he was really generous in just letting me go for it. Uh, and I went through a few different funding cycles, but eventually got a small grant through the Arts Council to do it. And then shot it with yourself, of course. And what was great, you know, working with someone like you is that you're able to communicate or understand how to communicate with an artist who may not have the industry vocabulary. And you're, you know, it, it's for a, an artist who has certain visual ambitions, because uh, I really wanted it to look and reference a certain kind of cinematography that it, it needed to have a kind of a soupy orange look because I wanted it to look like Gattaca, if you recall. Mm. And so, uh, and it had a particular styling that was a bit like the that kind of 1950s kind of styling as well. Um, and so it was a very relatively straightforward shoot and that we did it all in somebody's, between somebody's kitchen and living room and a bit of their garden. And I got access to this amazing house of a friend, an artist who has this incredible house with this beautiful kitchen that she's because she's obsessed with kitchens, <laughs> in a good way. So it was a great space to work, and uh, but it was also to be able to explain that because I've, I've had lots of different experiences with industry people through various shoots, and um, you know sometimes, you know, a, a kind of a, an AD or an assistant will give out to me because my formatting of my script is not regular, and it's just like. Is there something you don't understand about it, or is there something I love wrong? That it was just like, <laughs> what is wrong with my formatting that you don't get about this tiny short film that is really quite straightforward? It doesn't have to have all of that industry formatting because I'm not making a Hollywood film that has to go through several hundred people so that they can all understand it. It's a really limited because I think what I've done over the over the years is minimize the crew to just have a very tight 
small bunch of people that I know I can work with. And now that rarely happens. You're the only consistent person I've worked with, really, because everybody else has kind of changed because they're not available or they're busy doing something else. And uh, and and I've been lucky then, for the most part, in having a kind of a really pleasant experience because we have, you know, a very limited funding within the visual arts film area that I work in because I'm not getting funding from the film part of the Arts Council is the visual arts. So it's smaller budgets, but also the, it doesn't have the industry imperative in, in what I've worked with so far of having to show it a cinema or having that particular level of industry involved in the process, which can actually kind of be, for me, it would be kind of a little bit counterproductive because I have other ridiculous ambitions in terms of what I want to make. Um, but I think... The, the 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 second project that we worked on. Will I just continue talking about this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so, the idea of this mandated vocabulary was really interesting for me as a way of resolving how script writing occurs. Because mm. I'm interested in narrative structures, but not interested in telling a, st- a standard narrative. So I'm interested in how stories come together and how we can read stories from a kind of a bunch of almost random material that's put together. So for the second film that we worked on, which was called Edward and Ar- Edward and Arlette, um, that came after um, quite a long process that started in a gallery. So I had this exhibition. Well, first of all, I broke my hand skiing. <laughs> and when I was recovering from the, the hand accident, I started collecting photographs of hands through social media. So I accumulated... And then it was the, I got really fed up with Facebook at the time and started just actually posting photographs of hands instead of talking to anybody. So I created this kind of weird hand phenomenon within my little social media bubble and then posted and collected all those photographs on a Tumblr site. And Tumblr is like really great as an image archive kind of source, or it was, I mean, it's rubbish now, um, but it was great back then, which is like 2012, isn't it? Um, so I accumulated a whole bunch of photographs, noticed at one point that these photographs had, um, words on them. But prior to that, I kind of, I put on a a small exhibition, which I collaborated with about 12 other artists and asked them for bits and pieces of their work or fragments of their work that had a hand in it. So it wasn't like actual full artworks it was more of a, a an accumulation of fragments of bits and pieces and then it was one of these again no budget exhibitions and so i wasn't able to fly anybody in so i ended up actually remaking a lot of these fragments of other people's work so and i and i did one of these you know curating um jobs where i i didn't break all the rules but i did the thing that you're not supposed to do and that i only curated my friends <laughs> it wasn't like in any way objective. It was a completely subjective uh, kind of connection with people who I'd met over the last few years on various residencies and, and projects and exhibitions. So I had like a, a close relationship with them so I could ask them, can I just have a bit of that project rather than the whole thing? And is it okay if I just reprint it or remake it? So it ended up being quite a, a really interesting arrangement of these table and wall kind of collections of objects about hands and there was everything from newspapers through to little um clay traditional clay sculptures through to photographs of other people's rodin sculptures at the bottom of a box and all the rest of it 
but one of the uh, pieces was I got a art uh, an art critic to handwrite an essay that she had written about uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, and moreover, it was actually a text. She's a a, a practicing doctor who had uh, taken up art criticism after she stopped practicing, and um, she was really fascinated then always about the doctors or people from a medical background who went into visual arts because it's actually quite a strong tradition of people who have done that including people like Patrick Ireland or Brian O'Doherty who was a doctor for example in the Irish uh, art history canon um, so she had written this essay and Arthur Conan Doyle was a doctor and then he she kind of referenced uh, this other guy called uh, uh, anyway a few other people and a few other things and then this story called The Adventure of the Cardboard Box, which was all about um, this ear and Mirinelli. Is it, what's his name again? I forget the name, sorry. Um, but anyway, it was a story that uh, I used then as a narrative base for this film project. The film project then was visually based on the hand photographs, because when I was looking at all of my collection of hand photographs, I realized that there was words on them. So... I kind of constructed this really bonkers script where I used the words that appeared on the hand photographs as the dialogue for the Sherlock Holmes story and then uh, flipped the characters, merged characters. It became then something else. It's so not a Sherlock Holmes story because Sherlock Holmes never appears in it, but it's just this sort of rather um, crazy, uh, mannered uh, narrative of love, jealousy and murder. And... Um, that was a fun and difficult thing to actually work uh, work out. I worked with this actor called Gina Mugsley who helped me on the dramaturgy side of it, of how to work the ideas through to some sort of dramatic or you know physical conclusion and how to kind of realise that, which was great. And uh, and so that was, you know, it, it, again, it was lovingly shot in a cinematic style with lots of beautiful lighting, thanks to Luca Rattini. And... <laughs> um, and that really helped pull it together. I think what I really was interested in is how the power of the visual, if you're using various visual cinematic techniques, it actually kind of creates a legibility and a readability for an audience to be able to pull stuff together. So despite the fact that you've got these characters, for the most part kind of speaking utter nonsense, their actions and the scenography and the mise-en-scene and all that kind of stuff really creates a narrative flow all of its own that you kind of are able to follow it. And I think what I, I mean, I, I, I took the, the Sherlock Holmes story and, and recreated the story in a linear fashion. So unscrambled the, the interesting fictional kind of construct that you have in the detective story revealing itself through various bits and pieces and turned it into a linear story but then it ended up complicating it again by adding in a secondary narrative about these two, this sort of gay love affair between two of the characters and, and turning this sort of heterosexual uh, love story all gone wrong into this additional kind of trans and then gay and then breaking and then confusion where the one of the characters becomes his sister and then has a sort of a, you know, suicide pact with the murderer at the end. So it's all rather bonkers it's all rather benign because the there's very little blood and guts <laughs> but it is kind of it crossed lots and lots of different narrative kind of hoops and and jumped all over the place so but again i think it's quite a straightforward story and it, it it's 
quite, you know, we, I, we were, I was in this amazing studio at the time in, a, in the centre of Dublin in an old nursing home. So we had this beautiful Victorian kind of um, room, huge room to, to use as a studio uh, for the main kind of action between the two main characters that kind of are the other parallel narrative. And that was really great to have at the time. So, And then, but you also have that part of, <clears throat> that you also basically, your exhibition are made of like video, maybe photography, then you make your own kind of sculptures. Yeah. Uh, and as you say, you take these kind of things as well from social media, etc. So, so how, how does it all come together? Like it, there is a, your creative process when you start a project is you are you going to approach from one art and then the other ones relate together or you just find it looking you need you look for a need you need something to add this other part and the other part how all these things come together all around one subject do you have an idea or have you ever realized that <laughs> Well, I don't think there's ever one subject, you see, because mm. I kind of work off multiple storylines and, and, and shove multiple kind of pathways together. And that's what I'm interested in doing, not just kind of creating one singular idea. So it kind of reflects, you know, the complexity of the world, dude. There's never one singular solution. Things are not black and white. There isn't a binary anything. Everything is non-binary. So it's like, it's it's a way for me to kind of navigate the world and, and, and pull in information from lots of different sources. And it's like everybody does that. All artists do that. It sort of depends on how you tidy up the final kind of outcome, whether it's into a, a lovely, uh, straightforward novel narrative or a painted canvas or something. It's not that different from the way most artists suck in information and then kind of, you know, regurgitate it through an artwork. But I do kind of like the way that different artworks can interconnect with each other. So generally, mm. uh, when I do an exhibition, there isn't even a singular piece on a wall or an object will connect and cross-connect to different pieces. So everything becomes an installation, even though it might be a bunch of things on a pedestal rather than some big immersive thing. But um, that's, that's the way I had approached that way of resolving working in film and photography and sculpture simultaneously and trying to create something. So there's never one big message. It's always kind of multiple messages. And that can be kind of frustrating, but I also think it can be quite generous that you're not really just... Uh, it can be quite generous because you're just allowing lots of interpretive possibilities from the audience rather than being very, very didactic and specific about what you're trying to say. Um there's, and that's the reason why I haven't gone into documentary or the, there's a very strong kind of tradition or practice within artists where they make these film essays, which are like very slow, detailed and slightly chaotic, but fascinating documentaries that you don't see on TV or in a film. But there's a very particular genre of that film essay that's now very popular within the art world. And like it allows for films like you there's ex exhibition films that go on for like two hours or or you know or longer or they're kind of filmic constructs that have that go on for like days but i'm still kind of interested in that 10 15 minute video experience in a gallery as being kind of the limit of people's attention span hmm. and uh so 
the next film that we worked on was 30 minutes long, which was the Roger Casement film. Uh, and that was also, you know, that's a bit of an ask, but I kind of wanted to make a, a kind of a slow and somber and respectful film um, about one of our great national heroes. Um, but also to highlight the fact that he was, you know, greatly misunderstood. And mm. the and that was a fascinating project that kind of, I, you know, just to continue the discussion about the mandated scripting or mandated vocabulary and stuff that was uh it came from the previous project i'd um yeah morelli is the guy uh who's the guy that was referenced in the uh, arthur conan Doyle story so the morelli was this art critic who uh had created uh, well an art uh enthusiast or art um expert who had figured out a way of identifying paintings based on uh, or authenticating paintings based on following small details. And so ears and hands are always uh, drawn rather subconsciously by the artist or painted rather subconsciously. And, and generally, most artists have their own way of doing it. So rather than looking at the main sort of head portrait, for example, in a painting to try and authenticate it, you can kind of see a pattern of the way an artist will draw an ear or paint an ear or hand. And he created these charts of various artist styles so you're able to kind of cut through the schools and all the assistants who do in the small details and find uh, a better way and it's a way of authenticating a particular artist it's still used today the Morelli technique and stuff so that was a big part of the Conan Doyle story without going into more detail about that but uh, I kind of got fed I got led down a kind of a rabbit hole of researching Morelli <laughs> and found that there was this really obscure Michael Haneke film that was made in the 80s that was shot in Venice, which had Morelli as a kind of a background parallel narrative within the story of this drug adult art student who went on a kind of a, a binge in Venice and ended up killing his drug dealer. And anyway, it was a made for TV German uh, f film that was pretty obscure. It's before he actually started making any of his important work. It was sort of, he was in his late early 50s, I think. Um, so before Benny and anyway, before any of his good films that he's known for, and it's pretty dreadful actually. But uh, um, and within the film, there's like some shots of a big ear and stuff. So that's a kind of Morelli reference is always a big ear of some kind. But I was really interested in the. the I, I got access eventually to the film. It was kind of hard to track down. Found a DVD on eBay. <laughs> it was like uh, rather peculiar um, with sub with English subtitles. Um, so, I, but. I was kind of fascinated by the film. It kind of rang, there were certain narrative moments in it that kind of paralleled uh, what I was trying to do or how I was trying to navigate the life of Roger Casement because he had this really complex and incredibly interesting life that actually would garner about three or four feature films. And I was trying to make this short little art film. So there was no way I had the capacity to make some sort of overarching a dramatic, uh, you know, historical drama that actually did it any justice. So I decided to take another, you know, avenue, which is I like create a whole other story, a counterfactual or a fictional alternative. So I, it was funded, thankfully and fantastically, through the 1916, you know, commemoration of the 1916 rising in 2016. So there was a certain amount of extra new funding available for artists who were dealing with that kind of content. And so I was lucky to get two grants and one to shoot the, the part of the film in, in Ireland and then do 
the rest of it in Norway. Um, so the way that the film is constructed, I, I, I set the film 25 years in, into the future after his execution in 1941, um, where he was notionally still alive. And at that stage, he, it, the story is basically that he had gone into exile with his boyfriend. Um, in real life, what had happened is that uh, after when Casement was, uh, was fundraising through the Fenians in New York for the Irish rebellion, and he had travelled back to Europe uh, via Norway, and it stopped off in Christiana, which is now called Oslo, of course, and uh, uh, he had actually started going out with this guy in, in New York who was this total con man um, who had fathered children with women, of course, but um, he was basically working as a rent boy, and uh, they struck up a relationship, and he travelled back with them to Europe, and they stopped off. He was Norwegian, Adler Christiansen was his name, and he, they stopped off in Oslo for a little while and then went on to Germany to try and recruit prisoners of war for an Irish army of rebellion, which the Germans were going to release to fight the British. All that completely didn't happen. It completely failed. There was a gun-running incident. Casement was arrested and then uh, tried for treason a year later and then was executed. So it was a huge disaster. So I kind of stopped, reversed the narrative and left them in, in Oslo. <laughs> And then they had retreated to some cabin in rural Norway. Uh, and then the Michael Haneke connection is that I, I, I used the dialogue from the Haneke film, uh, which is called Vervar Edgar Allen, to provide the, 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 the narrative of the voice, the, the voice over the, the dialogue for the, the Casement film, but having to restructure the film completely. So obviously all the, the scenes and the original kind of, you know, action is is completely and utterly changed but the dialogue is sort of there it's it's stilted it's it's very mannered it's all a little bit wrong they're kind of not talking nonsense but there's a lot of stuff that happens that parallels particular historical points of interest so what i was interested in the in in telling in the story is that like there's without you know the casement tragedy is that he was abandoned by ireland in his hour of need and he was basically you know, depending on who you read, is that he was hung on a comma, and this sort of definition of treason. But actually, he was hung because he was a homosexual. He was basically outed in court, you know, behind the scenes, and the support that he had fell away. And and that the amazing thing about Casement, or the way of understanding him, is that he was essentially the Bob Geldof of his time. He had created this humanitarian, uh, you know, the notion of humanitarianism, actually, because he had, was the the celebrity kind of diplomat in charge of the, or you know, fronting the Congo Reform Association, which revealed the excesses of King Leopold in the rubber plantations in the Congo, and then subsequently did more of that work in Putumayo on the Peruvian um, border um, in, in Latin America, and he. Um, created this awareness of native exploitation for profit. And especially within the Congo, you know, Leopold had treated the Congo as a private kind of fiefdom. It wasn't even connected to Belgium in some respects. And he had, you know, there's this, the numbers are horrific in terms of the, 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 the human kind of devastation that it caused in terms of the tens of, not, I mean, tens of millions of people of natives who were, you know, died as a result of the, the, the really super ridiculously cruel rubber plantation kind of practices. So 
he was much celebrated for this because he actually managed to reverse all that, initiate a certain kind of, you know, care, <laughs> not care, he says, but not really. It took a long time for it to happen. Congo is still really screwed up as a result of all the colonial interventions over the centuries. But at least it kind of started a particular awareness of, of you know, of humanitarian kind of issues. So he was quite an amazing person. And he had, he hung out, you know, when he was in prison, Arthur Conan Doyle, just to make some weird cross-reference, did write a letter of support for him, pleading that he had done such amazing work. And he was knighted by the British Crown for this work as well. So he was much celebrated and respected. And yet, what happened with him was that he, through seeing the kind of treatment of these, you know, the colonies and the co- and how badly they were treated, he began to realise that the same kind of thing was happening with the Irish. So he changed his allegiances from the crown and became a nationalist. And then, you know, eventually lost his knighthood and then was executed. So he flipped his position completely. But he didn't get a lot of support along the way. And what I was really interested in the film is kind of exploring this notion of of treason and losing support and being kind of abandoned by people who you thought loved you so within the film adler joins the german army and becomes a nazi um and he's visited during the film by alice stopford green who was one of his big supporters in the congo reform association and he she has an affair with the boyfriend so he's kind of betrayed in, in several different ways and then there's this rather peculiar monologue at the end of it where he kind of talks about betrayal and in this sort of weird reference to a kind of a relationship but it 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 all very unexplicitly kind of references how he was treated and how his life just was turned upside down and how it all not was for nothing but how it's all been so horrendously misunderstood because you know casement is fascinating because he's been you know when the 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 revelations of his homosexuality which ended up destroying the support that he had publicly, um, they were kind of revealed through these diaries that were discovered. And so because these diaries only referenced a couple of years or maybe three different, four different years, I think, of activities where he documented his sexual encounters with natives and other such, uh, and cruising uh, through various kind of cities and places he lived in. Um, There was a lot of uh, you know, people thought that these diaries were fake. Um, but what happened with that is that, I mean, there's some, there's a guy called Jeffrey Dungeon who's a uh, a former councillor from Belfast City Council, um, and he sort of deciphered the diaries and kind of analysed them. He's himself, you know, gay, so understands how the world works, and the, his black diary kind of text, which is this massive tome, really analyses what these activities were. And there's been other analysis of different, of his sexuality, which kind of prove it's completely normal for a closeted middle-class man living within a very heteronormative society that he only could have this sexual release through these sort of anonymous encounters in parks and stuff. The magic, the bonkers thing about Casement is that he was a total bureaucrat. So he wrote everything down, recorded everything. He also destroyed tons of the diaries when he knew he was being followed by the secret service the burgeoning secret service uh in the uk they followed him to new york and he disposed of lots of diaries in the way and there was some left behind in london they were discovered and they were kind of random so it was all kind of random but that particular oddness of these diaries has been used as a point of like well they can't be real they must be fake 
But what I kind of really discovered by talking to more historians about it, especially the ones who believe the diaries are fake, is that their their kind of historical agenda is completely homophobic. Like they really just think that this great hero just could not have been a homosexual because you can't be both. And it's just like, um, I think you can. <laughs> I think you can do all these things and still be gay. It's okay. Um, so within the text around that, I was calling it inverted homophobia because it's sort of like there's this notion where you're kind of allowed to be a little bit gay, but not too gay. And that kind of reoccurs a lot in terms of how people tolerate different kind of forms of sexuality. And I think we see that much, much more in gender identity politics now that's kind of exploded in terms of levels of tolerance and acceptability of, of difference. So it was just a simple kind of a gay thing. And now you've got a whole myriad of different types of sexualities that people want to explore and gender identities, which are now, you see the same kind of thing happening where there's like this real limit to people's patience with it, which is just like a bit ridiculous. It's just like, can we all just please just get over ourselves a little bit and just let live, live. And if people want to explore these new, you know, multiple combinations of stuff, well, you know, let them out. They're not really doing you any harm or damage. It's like, um, so that was kind of really interesting. And it was like really cool to be able to kind of expand my cinematic vocabulary in a way of, of doing a big outdoor shoot with landscape, which was like the cool thing of going to Norway and, uh, on a, micro budget as you know where we drove around in a car for a weekend and got this amazing footage yeah it was through an incredible storm which like every single weather weather pattern that exists we got to experience over the course of three or four days it was bonkers but um yeah, i was used to from from ireland anyway it's quite similar <laughs> four seasons in a day it's yeah well it was blizzard rains wind sunshine all in one day but it was more extreme but at least in norway you've got this amazing i mean for the place that we chose to go to it was like fjords 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 yeah. so everywhere Stunning. you looked was just incredible yeah. and it was just that wonderful hardanger excuse me Hardanger Fjord and, uh, you know, past Bergen, which is just like spectacular landscape wise. And you can get, we literally were just driving around and stopping the car every 20 minutes. It was so, it was so much fun to do a really straight photo shoot, film <laughs> shoot like that, where it becomes really kind of addictive where you're just going like, oh, look, 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 stop the car, stop the car, stop the car, <laughs> which was kind of a relief after doing the intense kind of indoor scenes, which were done in a, small wooden cabin in the Wicklow Mountains during, again, another really stormy, freezing weekend where we were all kind of soaked to our skin several times. Um, or at least I was from all the running around. Um, but, yeah, that was that project. But um, from what you were talking about, uh, I have two questions, actually. Um, one, actually, I'm curious about your dialogues you give to your actors. Um what the actor thinks, how did they, they, themselves kind of relate to the characters when they have kind of this such a disconnect kind of dialogue to perform? I think it's, I mean, I've learned along the way how to do that or how to deal with it more. And um, I think it kind of was pretty clear from my first kind of trial run of that project in Helsinki where you try and work with the best actor you can find. And I mean, and as someone working outside the industry, that's really difficult to actually grapple with. So I've gone through casting agencies and um, 
from big ones to real small ones and and had varying degrees of success um and really it's the the the, the if it, working with a more experienced actor they're able to kind of negotiate that and i've kind of worked in ireland i guess with a bunch of people who've worked in experimental theater and 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 they're kind of used to slightly wacky approaches and they've kind of there's there's definitely i'm not like the only one doing this kind of work in the whole universe there's um so working with someone like Gina Moxley, she's kind of worked through like Hamlet, for example, where they've done a, a, a presentation on the Abbey. They've kind of rewritten these great master narratives. And like Shakespeare's difficult enough to, to perform anyway, but then they kind of rewrite it and restructure it through this Pan Pan Theatre Company and stuff. So working with actors like that, they kind of have a, a propensity towards it. So it hasn't been as difficult, but it's a case of finding people like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Um, it's probably a little bit like me and with cinematography. I, I look forward to something that is just a paragraph and you have to shoot for half an hour <laughs> to get half an hour footage, you know, half an hour film. You know. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not for everybody. It's, that's 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 true. Like, you know, visual arts, you know, kind of. Well, actors are difficult, you know, because I think there's there's I'm, I'm not trained as a as a drama dramaturge or a, a drama director. I kind of have this. A certain kind of mixed skill set from my background in communication so I kind of know how it works but I kind of know how it works I don't know definitively I don't have all the bag of tricks that everybody else has so I've had to learn it along the way but I've been lucky with the last few things where I've kind of worked with I worked through like it was you know the actor who played Caseman in the film was kind of hard going because he's trained as a comedy actor so he was all up for loads of fun and I'm like this is a really sad film it's really tragic stop being so happy and that was like really tough but we got there in the end and he kind of really pulled it out of the bag especially for the monologue it was great he was Big like time, you know he really did a great job on it and, and and that was like gina has been like extraordinarily helpful in that because she's actually one of those interesting actors who comes from a, a an art background so she was went to crawford so kind of understands the art stuff as well as you know lots of other different approaches and that's kind of a rare find as well so that was really good um and like with the yeah and and the other question is like um actually going back a little bit um to the 90s we kind of skipped that like uh, i'm just curious to know how difficult it is at the beginning to to start exhibiting without you know having uh, having a portfolio exhibition previously uh, and and how was them in in the nineties in Ireland you know compared with now like uh is is it was it more difficult uh, funding wise or you know hmm. well um because I studied in America did my kind of art training in the states, I had no foundation within a generation or a peer group in Ireland. I started kind of trying to, I realized that when I was in the States having to return because my visa was limited, um, that I would be coming back. I wasn't emigrating to the States. So I I did an exhibition of Irish artists when I was in Rochester. So that kind of connected me to a a few people who are still really good friends. That was a really good kind of strategy of making friends. Well, not really, but connecting to the art world back in Ireland. And these are artists who were also temporarily in America on various kind of education programs in New York City, actually. So I kind of connected to a, a certain group of people. Um, 
but really what got me going when I got back, it is really difficult. I was like walking blind, you know, kind of raw into a whole new city and with no kind of real exhibition history. So I started actually getting involved in writing and then people kind of got to know me through my critical writing for reviews and articles in art magazines. And that kind of got me a certain kind of reputation, but also just through a few random projects and um, that I applied for. There was a certain... There were a few larger funded European projects that I got involved in uh, and that kind of got the ball rolling. And then, you know, you just kind of, I joined a studio that kind of helped me have a space to work. Um, I got a residency in, in the fire station studios uh, fairly early on uh, and that actually, or in the late 90s and early noughties. And that was like an incredible base to, to really start from because you've got this subsidized housing live workspace to for three years more or less so that was like a really great place to to work from a foundation so that was I always kind of credit that as kind of a really great starting point and then you just kind of start getting on the old group exhibition solo exhibition cycle and stuff and try and get get your work out there and get dates I mean I think what the I find it I never really, I don't really have a good studio practice. I don't just go and sit in the studio and have great thoughts and fiddle with things until I get them right. I kind of very production orientated. Um, sometimes I'll have some stuff that I haven't shown. Like I'm working on a few public art projects at the moment, which I'm shortlisted for, that I'm kind of working, developing small sculptures up into a larger scale and, and, and developing them for their context of their situation. Um, and there were just sm some small sculptures that I hadn't ever exhibited because I was just doing this other film project and photography project in the last couple of years uh, or the last two years now. So it, it, I think the opportunities, I was very lucky to get a bunch of different small um, grants to the Arts Council, some travel grants, that kind of stuff. Um, I think there's the level of professionalism for grant applications in Ireland now has gone through the roof. The stuff, the quality that you're competing with is extraordinary. So it's really difficult. I think it's very, very competitive and really hard to get funding. And, you know, there's a level of production that requires more and more money. So there's less to go around because people are applying for big grants to make these big productions. And there's a, there is a, you know, the funding cycles in the visual arts never recovered from the recession. We're still kind of below that. There's been a huge amount of money through COVID being put back into the arts and like so for example the Arts Council bursaries um, are normally about 20, 25 this year they gave out over 100 so there's been a, a really marked increase of the government trying to give and support the visual the art sector um, you'll never find any I mean, a shortage of people complaining about it but it's it's and it's, it doesn't, you know, not everybody gets a grant, but it, actually the things are changing a little bit. I think at the moment it's kind of more bonkers because there's nowhere to show anything because everything's closed as these rolling kind of lockdowns happen. And then last year I was, I had a big exhibition year with lots of dates to do things and end up, you know, with stuff stuck on walls for several months on lockdown. And that continues to this very day. <laughs> but, um, and, and, and the other question I have about the exhibition, I have no idea how can you logistically 
kind of organize an exhibition like uh, your type of exhibition or where they have a sculpture maybe the photography the video and this and that how how, how do you approach like logistically like a place uh, a gallery to show your exhibition um for, for a solo exhibition, uh, when you're lucky enough to have that, you know, you get gallery plans and sometimes I make a little model of the room and then start making little versions or play around with it or do it on screen or, you know, not through SketchUp. We'll have kind of a, I've often just plan it out and, and have all these various elements and then just put them together. It may seem really complex to you, but I don't see it as super complex. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way my mind works. So it's actually quite fine to have all these competing kind of objects and, and mediums and forms thrust together in, in scale and size and format and duration. It's, it's just not, it's the, what would, keeps me interested if I go to an exhibition. It's kind of like always what I would like to see, what I want to get out of an exhibition is as much as possible. So sometimes, you know, I over egg it. Sometimes there's way too much work there, uh, but that's kind of how I want to do it. And it just depends on, you know, your relationship with the curator and how they can kind of, slow down your ambitions or or ramp them up into something else because each kind of curatorial relationship is different and each curator has a a different way of working and you know I'm and that's you know part of the process is that you're working with the somebody you know who's the custodian or the manager of the space but you, you want I always want to have an interesting discussion with them because their space has a particular uh, voice and you're there to help continue that and augment it and contribute to it so um you know it's a convoluted process um i haven't done a big mixed bag of work for a while now so i've kind of also reduced my the complexity but actually i think what i've done is just shrunk it down a little bit but we can talk about that do you want to talk about the Jolie stuff now? Sure. <laughs> you can wait. I know that. <laughs> yes, I can't wait either. Like, I really, uh, yeah, pity to miss this project. But, I, I, yeah, I love the concept and I love the way you kind of find these concepts uh, through, through the history or the Irish history especially. So it's kind of your, your Jolie's um, kind of experimentations, a technique, uh, uh, the late 1800s is it's very very interesting and uh if you want to you know first maybe explain us like how originally works the technique and uh, and how you kind of approach this technique for your work yeah i mean i think i came across jolie through the casement project it kind of i was through a discussion with somebody in the botanic the director of the botanical gardens actually and uh I won't go into it, but anyway, it was just he kind of referenced that, and I kind of remembered that he existed, and I'd come across him when I was in Rochester. When I was, I worked for a couple of years after I finished my MFA, I did work experience in the George Eastman Museum, which is this museum of everything photography, and uh, they had some early experiments by Jolie. So Jolie was, you know, one of the few historical characters or historical figures within the history of photography who's Irish but nobody really kind of knows much about him. And the reason is that he created this photography process that failed. <laughs> so it, it, it didn't really sustain itself in the historical narrative because it kind of didn't really 
happen. It didn't, it didn't turn into a productive commercial process. But what he did do was that he proved that all colors could be created from red, green, and blue light. And that was a theory that was kind of posited in the early, mid, you know, 19th century. And then by the 1880s, and so you could have that could be illustrated through combinations of colored light, but it hadn't been fixed into a photographic image. So what he was able to do was create a fixed photograph that used that theory to create a color image. And the way he did it was through uh, an additive photography process where you've got a, a color screen of red, green, and blue stripes that is put in front of the film when it's exposed. And then that same color screen is then put in front of the processed film. And the film is processed into a positive, uh, not a negative. So there's a little bit of, you know, analog chicanery involved, which added, added complications. Um, but what you get is that the light is filtered on exposure and the light register is recorded in black and white. And so when you place that same color filter in front of the striped filter in front of the processed image, it approximates color. Now, your eye does a huge amount of the work. It's making all those combinations. But essentially, it's the same way that color is created on your LED screen that you're staring at right now. Um, it's the same way that color phosphors work on an analog kind of, you know, cathode ray tube as well. Rather differently, of course. But it's, um, it's sort of really basic light as a way, you know, using light to create color. And what's super interesting, I find, you know, nobody understands it. <laughs> It's sort of like, it's sort of like super ultra basic color theory, but that actually is so beyond people's kind of interests and awareness and knowledge these days. It's really interesting. Um, so I've had a lot of strange conversations with people who kind of go, so it's like, it's like a red, green and blue screen. So there's different layers to it. And I'm like, no, there's two layers, one stripey layer, one black and white layer. That's it. Um, so in, in trying to re replicate the process, um, I mean, it, it also, it started off as a film project. Mm. And, I, and, I, and through the kind of, you know, the funding cycles of not getting funding, <laughs> essentially, or enough funding to do what I wanted to do, I started actually experimenting with the process. Because I always thought the process would be too tricky, too hard to actually realize or recreate. But I actually did a few tests, worked with this amazing guy called Louis, uh, Louis Hawk, who... Um, is a great tech and was able to you know between we made a screen i made a screen through uh, uh the a color regular c print on transparent material a uh, uh dura dura well it's a dura clear which is like a dura trans which are is the the process that's or the printing process that's used in a light box like for advertising all the light boxes and bus stops and stuff they used to be Photographs are now inkjets. But prior to that, people like Jeff Wall and uh, Rodney Graham and people like that who have big light box uh, photographs, they all use this Duratrand. And it's basically instead of printing on paper, you're printing onto opaque plastic. And a Duraclear is just on clear plastic. So what you get is a very, a very, um, you know, opaque surface. So I was able to, the light is able to go through it and act as a filter. Now, it was just a hunch that I thought this would work, but it totally did. The limits of the Duratrand, because it's a digital printed, is that I was able to, I, I could only get about four times as thick a line that remained sharp compared to the original. 
the original that Jolie did. He created this machine for laying down ink lines on into gelatin to create his screens. Now, the machine has been lost over the passage of time, so nobody knows. There's a, a very rough diagram I found in a, in a journal, but it doesn't even begin to explain how you would actually remake it. And it would be just way too complicated and I'm not really interested or capable of recreating that kind of technology. Whereas I can just send off my mad, you know, line pictures to London to get printed. So I had to get them done in London because there's no outfit in Dublin that prints Duraclears anymore. Um, and um, did a few tests and it worked. I was able to use some, I got borrowed some original photos from um, a professor of in geology in Trinity because Jolie was a geology professor uh, who was this mad scientist who wrote 200 plus papers uh, about millions of different scientific kind of you know oddities and experiments and this photography process was just one thing he kind of worked on he did actually pursue it commercially and had a patent on it that was then uh, the patent was contested in the States and somebody stole it and he had a big legal case and he won it. But by that time, the Lumiere brothers, those darned French photographers who invented cinema, right, they had come up with the autochrome. And the autochrome was a potato starch-based kind of way of holding the, the coloured inks. It worked in a similar way, but it was just more attractive. Jolie's images are all stripes. And the autochrome was more spotty, so it was kind of, you know, the easiest way to explain it is kind of it's more impressionistic, it's all these little spots. So it kind of, they're, they're much clearer images. The Jolie ones have a very particular stripey look, which is, you know, ultimately unattractive and ultimately gets in the way of your, the clarity. But I really liked it. thought it was really, really nice. There's something very unique about it. And I kind of thought that, I didn't kind of think, actually, for me, for me, well, it was just a, a way for me to reintroduce myself to photography in general. I kind of lost faith in photography through engaging with a broader spectrum of contemporary art and, and love photography and love the artists, lots and lots of artists who use photography as their primary medium. But I'm not interested in being part, in part of the language of photography or the history of photography. I'm kind of more interested in larger issues of, of art and the world in general. Photography discourse can be really quite limited and um and still a lot of it in ireland especially is kind of rooted around documentary images it's about using your camera to freeze motion to get that decisive moment and uh, you know that's very reductive of course there's loads more going on there's a lot of really clever interesting people using photography but actually it's still it's kind of too limited so with the Jolie process, I was able to kind of create my own little enclave within photography and use that then to create a whole history of photography. So my ongoing obsession with history or interest in history was able to kind of coalesce within this project where I've kind of, because the process never got used, what I've been trying to do with the, the various, you know, exhibitions of the photographs and what I shoot is that I, I'm creating this history that never happened giving it a visual history that it never was able to have because it was never used. And from that, I'm able to, what I'm doing is dipping into lots of different visual histories and using those as reference points. So the current project kind of started off as a, 
uh, a collaborative project with a, a flower and garden club that uh, in Dunboyne where I recreated these flower arrangements from paintings that started in the 1490s through to the end of the 20th century and on the side I started shooting these um, self-portraits because it was one of those kind of moments in the studio doing tests where I didn't have a model so Louis was operating the camera and I just sat in front of the camera and did a few kind of tests and then I started messing around with different outfits and costumes and uh, kind of it started a series of these self-portraits where I'm hiding myself and covering up myself and then referencing other um, figurative photography kind of practitioners from Robert Maplethorpe through to loads of different people um, and combining different photographers some sort of minor not kind of iconic photographs but some sort of images that some photographers are kind of famous for so they're all kind of combined there's a, these strange combinations of flowers and self-portraits that I've been showing for the last year um, and then eventually I got the film made so I got the film made as part of the show that was in the Royal Hibernian Academy that opened last March and then went into lockdown for six months <laughs> but um, so the film got made and the film was also a way of bringing the analog technology up to date and using contemporary technology uh, to animate the stripes for example so I got uh, an anim I worked with an animator to create an audio responsive algorithm that was able to respond to the music and have the the, the stripes sort of bounce around in response to the music um, and and in terms of my cinematic ambitions I've, I've been really trying to I've been really wanting to make a music video for years mm -hmm. and to really engage with a more like to not ditch my historical kind of docudrama narrative which a lot of it has been in the last while but to kind of um, just really engage with more contemporary image making so I took the idea of the structure of a music video and 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 use that to make the film and by the structures that I mean that the, the song had to come first and the visuals had to come second now I had a script that I was working from which again was another mix of texts from Beckett and, and Jean Genet but really kept plugging away with the structure until I had the music composed uh, which I worked with this two musicians uh, and recorded over a weekend in, in Berlin and we were worked with kind of mood music and then like six months later finally found some money to work with a with a vocalist and a lyricist to to sing the the lyrics that I had kind of grappled from this Jean Genet poem and then from that I was able to then edit which was basically I got that done in December and the show had to be had to be finished by February. So it was a really quick turnaround in terms of visuals. So the visuals were because I wanted the actors to lip sync the song because it was a music video, right? So you had to have somebody singing. So you had to have the song done before you could have somebody lip syncing to it. So I did that, <laughs> but... <laughs> But I never got the funding I really wanted to do the live action sequence. So the, the live action sequence was more historical. It was more to do, the, the film itself was to do with the kind of the failed photography process mapped out through the failed uh, relationship between John Jolie and Henry uh, Horatio Dixon, who was his scientific collaborator. And they had, they're like, possibly a, a, a great scientific love story that was never told because they were collaborators Dixon was married to a woman but 
Dixon and Jolie are buried together in the same grave in Mount Jerome Cemetery in Dublin. And there's kind of a notion that they were lovers. They went on holidays together, they hung out together, they lived across the road from each other. They were probably just really good friends. They might have had some extreme bromance in the way that we describe it now. But I decided to kind of decided that they were gay <laughs> and, um, and that it was kind of a love story that that had never been told. Now, having said that, so the, the love story part of it um, was the live action sequence that I never got to shoot. So I ended up rendering that as text within the video. And, and then, but again, there's a few different removes involved because I was using this uh, Samuel Beckett short story to tell the story. So it was never that descriptive or particular or pointed in terms of their relationship. Um, the, the Sam Beckett story called First Love is about a man meeting a prostitute in a park and falling in love with her and moving in with her, getting her pregnant and leaving. When I've got two men, when I'm doing my fan fiction thing of, you know, inserting a, a gay or queer narrative into that heterosexual kind of narrative, it's very different than when you've got a man meeting a man in a park. It's like, there's obviously then it turns into this cruising situation. And then when you've got a man moving in with a man who then the other guy turns out to be an escort of some kind where he's taking in jobs or johns. Um, so that it's all rather opaque. I think within the, the music video, you've got like fragments of a narrative. It's never really, I mean, I think with the long format music video, like the Beyonce kind of, you know, 30 minute kind of visual essay thing, even in that, there's never a really clear narrative. It's all these fragments that are thrown together. So I was never that really worried about having to tell my story uh, because it's, it, it kind of, the structure itself is just fragmented and what pulls it together are the visuals. So you've got the visual animation and the song is what pulls it all together. And, I, and I'm not sure if anybody really gets what I'm trying to say but it's just moments of stuff that happens and you can see that there's a few touching moments and there's a relationship that breaks out and there's a frustration around this process that doesn't seem to quite work. And there's this, within the narrative, there's this, you know, the, the story itself is basically a story of child abuse or abandonment. So he's abandoned um, by his father as a kid, locked in a room. So that kind of plays out in my particular music video version of his life. So again, it's not like trying to be a documentary or a drama. It's just pulling in these fragments to tell a, a different kind of a story. And I think that different kind of a story is what makes it an art project. You know, it's not trying to be a Hollywood blockbuster or even function on TV. It's functioning in a gallery situation, which is a very different context for how you engage with visual material. You're kind of stuck in a room looking at something. So... Um, which is very different from being stuck in a cinema looking at something or being very different from being stuck at home looking at TV. You have a different expectation and different kind of, hopefully, a different engagement with what you're seeing because of the context. And that's always, you know, gives you a broader license or gives an artist a broader license to take more risks um, that you don't tend to see sometimes uh, in general media or, you know. Well, I think that's what I was doing as well. I was I was referencing all these kind of, you know, <laughs> points of the 90s in terms of my memory of what music videos were. And, and instead of, like, <clears throat> I think you've got amazing long format music videos like from Florence and the Machine or Beyonce and those people. There's a lot of them out there now. Uh, and they use the, they've harnessed like these amazing production budgets that they've got to make these 
fragmented narratives that are completely cinematic and really <laughs> extraordinary in lots of ways. And I, again, wasn't able to duplicate that, but I could do it in my own small, different way through my green screen antics. And, um, and I had been kind of, not kind of, I had been working on this project since 2016. And so I had a, been revising the script, accumulating bits of visual footage um, to initially it was supposed to be a multi-channel video so like a six screen video piece um, but by the end it became a single screen piece so I had quite a lot of material to work with to, to map around the singing and the and the um, lip syncing and stuff and then in the end I was able to work with like with two actors a father and a son um, over a couple of days uh, just to sort of get the footage down and there was like more than enough material to work with um, which I was delighted with because I had shot a lot of material in Paris and I was on a residency there of graveyards and mapped out some of the visual terrain within the Beckett story so I had a good foundation to work with very quickly um, that kind of created a visual diversity which you know you just can't just pull out of your hat <laughs> it has to kind of come from somewhere um, and, it, and it was great to be able to work like that even though it wasn't exactly what I wanted I was really happy with the end result um, yeah I think I think it's super fun I, um, <coughs> sorry I'm gonna I'm gonna put the the links to the <coughs> to the music video as well so great yeah. everybody can check it out <laughs> I think I think it's fantastic work you know um, it's great and it's very interesting to see how actually you work on a logarithmic as well with the music to animate those kind of colors as well. So it's, it's, it's it makes it even more interesting and the background story, but let's maybe going close to wrap this chat. Um, I got a couple of more questions. Um, um, and one is actually, you know, you were talking about, uh, your exhibition and how it's been, I don't know, how to, shut down for a while and and so i wanted to ask you like uh, how this kind of pandemic affected your your routine or your working routine and and what you know your exhibition as well and and what's what's the talking around in in museums and galleries and other other visual artists uh, what's what's going on what you heard about well 2020 was a really good year for me, <laughs> strangely. Uh, well, you know, I, what I, I'd, I'd, I'd gone into a production cycle in 2019 and created a, a large body of work of almost like 70 of these Jolie photographs. And, and I only show like 10 to 15 at a time because they're quite small and intense. So I've had this large body of work to dip into and draw from. And then through various funding cycles and conversations over the last couple of years as the project kind of developed I accumulated quite accidentally quite a lot of venues so instead of having like a very rigorous planned tour uh, I had a bunch of exhibitions lined up from December 2019 when it started in the dock in Carrick and Shannon through to the RHA and then the Void uh, Art Gallery in Derry and then on to uh, the Irish Cultural Centre in Paris, where the show is now. So through the year, <laughs> everything got started and stalled and stopped and locked down. And I had two other exhibitions that were postponed and cancelled, which were group exhibitions to do with the Jolie stuff. 
and they will happen hopefully later in 2021. Um, the the Paris show got hung on schedule for November because it was tied into Paris Photo Festival and the Photo Saint Germain Festival. Paris Photo got cancelled, and Saint Germain got postponed until the 7th of January so that opened like last week which was kind of amazing and uh, so the show's open there um, so I've been on this weird uh, busy schedule of rescheduling all of 2020 constantly I haven't I did get back into the studio to shoot some new photographs for Derry um, because at the time Derry and Paris were overlapping and I, I had to split the work and and the dairy show was quite large actually there was 18 photographs in it and the film and a sculptural installation and an uh, augmented reality piece as well so there was quite a lot to put on and then i had to, i had promised a certain bunch of the work for paris so uh that was great to get back in and shoot stuff i ended up shooting it in in one of my workplaces because i couldn't get access to the studio what happened during the year was i was the artist in residence in NCAD for the fine art department, but only got a couple of months action out of it because the college shut down when everything else shut down. So everything was locked down. I got in for like two half hour periods and was able to take out all the photography stuff so I could continue mounting it and, and just finishing it for exhibition and then prepared stuff that then got stalled and created stuff that didn't go out and then uncreated it and then moved it around. So I think like a lot of people, I was trapped at home. I couldn't do anything. A lot of the studios, uh, I was out of Temple Bar Studio where I had been. So I, uh, the the cool thing I got from it was free storage for a year. <laughs> well, everything was trapped in the studio in, in, in NCAD, in the art college. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it, it was kind of rubbish. And I think I, I wasn't able to do much of anything because... Everybody was sort of terrified and paralyzed, I think, en masse, globally, and no different from anybody else in that respect. And I, and I don't have, like I said, a very consistent studio practice, so I wasn't at home making 30 drawings a day. Like, there was lots of artists who did their lockdown projects, which they're showing now. Um, I didn't do that because I had the work made, so I've been kind of trying to just get the work out there. And it's been a bit, you know, it's been disappointing because the show... In the OHA was open for a month instead of two months. And then the show in Derry, again, was open for a month instead of two months because it, they both got hit by lockdowns. And then Paris, hopefully, you know, will not get closed down, but it's been open for a week. <laughs> and hopefully it'll get to stay open for its two-month slot as well. And the video is shown there as well. So they haven't... Uh, so we'll see what happens. I think it's there's a, a few other exhibitions that are going to happen this year. There's another exhibition, maybe there's of there's two exhibitions of the flower photographs that are hopefully going to happen, but it's all kind of depends on uh, restrictions and 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 what's and vaccinations and what public <laughs> access and vaccinations and 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 what was interesting when the when the show reopened in the RHA it was very busy for one weekend and then it was busy it was completely dead for the second weekend. Oh. People are afraid to go out, and I I share that fear of going into a public space and being around people. So it's very, I think art institutions, to answer your other question, I think really have to rethink how they show art. And it has to be something more than a virtual. It has to be another kind of engagement with people. And I think, tragically, the resources aren't necessarily there 
mentally from some curators and institutions, they're finding it really hard to re-navigate and reconstitute what it is that they do outside of putting stuff in a room. And that's been really difficult and sad to see. And then other institutions have really flourished. There's some smaller art centres around Ireland where they've just been commissioning stuff like fantastically small projects at small funds just to get people to continue to be able to make stuff. And that's been brilliant to see. But for the most part, I think the visual arts community is still stuck in the mode of having to put stuff in rooms. And that's going to be more and more difficult during the year. And the government supports have been brilliant to, to enable them to function, you know, with protected environments and, and extra invigilation and screen and sanitizers and all that kind of stuff. But I don't think the public are totally convinced that that's all in place. <laughs> they don't really want to go and see stuff like that. So as a the good news story, so I, one of my other, you know, I, I won a, I've won two public sculpture competitions of late as well. So as part of my lockdown activities is just doing lots of applications. So two of them have worked, which is great. So one is in Derry, and that was constructed as a socially distanced community art project that was to take place during lockdown. So as part of that project, it's constructed so that I get people to make part of the sculpture. So it's a giant hyacinth flower that connects back to the Jody project because that's all rooted around the hyacinth flower as well as part of the narrative. And um, I got pe asked people to collect materials from the gallery there's two buckets to make a mould and paper mache materials to make torn up paper and glue, layer it down to make this flower. So if you remember, like a hyacinth flower is made up of loads of little flowers. So each person makes a little flower and the flower size of that is a bucket. So you end up with this five metre sized hyacinth flower. And that was supposed to, you know, be installed in September but COVID got the better of it and the, we lost the original site. So it's been on hold during the lockdowns and now that's going to be hopefully assembled and put on display in March. And then the other project, I've got, just won this Dublin Sculpture Commission, which is uh, a, a large plastic, it's a 3D printed plastic sculpture that's covered in paper that uh, is going to be launched in June. So that's started off slightly socially engaged as well, but I realized from Derry that the logistics of that are, are really complex. I was asking people in Derry to make something quite straightforward, but every single object I got back is different. <laughs> it's amazing. People are extraordinary. They don't follow instructions, uh, but that's okay. That's called humanity, right? Uh, so there's a wonderful eclectic mix of these bucket flowers to assemble into this mad hyacinth flower. But for the project for Dublin, I, I kind of initially thought of something much more complicated and realized that it was just really unfeasible. So through the, the application process, the second stage of it, I re-engineered the project to be printed 3D. So it's this giant 3D printed plant plastic based um, sculpture that then I cover in paper uh, that'll be up outside for a year. So again, it's kind of a slightly improbable paper sculpture. It might not look paper, it might just like look like a, a painted form, but it is paper. Um, so that's sort of starting now. Uh, and, and so I'm kind of super crazy busy. <laughs> with, uh, And I've got two other public art projects that I'm working on as well that I'm at a second stage of uh, developing. 
they not didn't win them, but they're both quite engaged in terms of developing. One's a uh, a really complicated Welsh and Ireland cross channel collaboration in, in, with historical sites that have enormous heritage issues that kind of really create a massive limitations to what you can do and that's kind of really exciting because it's so complicated uh, and I'm working with a great artist called Mark Gubb who's the Welsh side of the the, the team um, and then there's sort of project for a, a housing estate anyway it's a sculpture project but there it's I've never been busier and it's pretty hilarious because I don't have a studio everything's from my kitchen table <laughs> so it's like hmm and I have a storage unit now with my stuff in it which I you know, hope to get out of soon enough. But it's like, it's amazing how I think you've got to be really adaptable as an artist and adapt to the situation and stuff. And I and I've, I've you know, managed not to make a complete mess of the house that I live in with my husband and share with the dog. That it's not just this crazy studio. The occasionally there's this big mess on the kitchen table, and then it kind of gets tidied away. But um, anyway, that's what I'm doing. That's not too bad. That's too bad. All right, I think we can wrap up maybe the last questions like um, <clears throat> if you if you want to give an advice maybe someone thinking to go like your roots like um, towards like uh, working through exhibitions and museums and galleries as a visual artist what would you suggest them well don't go to art school i didn't go to art school <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's my first uh, piece of advice. Uh, I was I was teaching in, in the art school a bit. I got a lot of kind of tutorial work during the lockdown through NCAD, so I'm being a bit sarcastic. I think it's really, it's, for uh, what not going to art school gave to me was a very different route into art because I was coming from this communications kind of, all my classmates went into television journalism, not even into print. A few went into print. Very few went into actually television production. It it generated very few director types. They're kind of journalists. And they're great at what they do, and they're all lovely people, and it's fantastic. <laughs> but it's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to do something more creative. Um, so in in contemporary visual arts, it's a, it's a very broad kind of business. It's a very broad kind of area where the people who come from peculiar places are the ones who tend to make the most interesting art. Because if you're coming from a more traditional art school kind of route, you've got a very particular uh, angle that your education has presented or created for you. And it, it kind of creates limits of research and limits of understanding sometimes. Um, I think what's really useful is, is going to a different country to do your studies as well. This kind of education I got in the States was a different kind of approach and a different route to what art can be about than I would have got from studying photography in Ireland. And at the time in Ireland, it was very technical and very boring and very documentary. You know, you've got your photo text kind of combination. I still do lots of photo text related stuff, but it's, it's got a, it's a very different approach. So I think the, the broader you can be in terms of your experience that you bring to art is what makes your art interesting. And it's, and it's not just like outsiders are cool. It's just that an outsider from the system brings something fresh and new that is interesting for the audience and the curators and the museums and stuff. They kind of like seeing somebody who's battled through the system to get to where they are. That sounds very romantic, but uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a tough slog. It's a really, 
difficult place to want to be part of. I mean, you've got to really work really hard and persist with your crazy ideas to do what you want to do and take lots of risks and spend lots of time and money doing something which most people perceive as being quite ridiculous and pointless. And in Ireland as well, we actually do have quite a strong public funding sector because we have a pretty rubbish market. The market for buying art is really limited and really conservative. And by limited, I mean that one person will buy one thing and that's it for your life, you're done. You know, It's just like there isn't a good collector culture. Mainland Europe, States or the UK have this sort of, you know, bourgeois collecting kind of capacity, which we don't really have in Ireland. I mean, I know the collectors who buy contemporary art. There's like five of them, you know, and they still haven't convinced them to buy my work yet. But there's a really limit. You know, I'm in some national collections and stuff, and that's great, but there's a real limit to, you know, what you can do. And I, and I worked with the commercial gallery for a while and did sell work, and that's great. But you do need, like, to work through a gallery. At the moment, I'm not working with a gallery. So I'm kind of funding the work through either institutional sales or, or or grants and I've been really lucky they don't come around they're not easily got and, and I've been this Jolie project especially I was shortlisted for two major projects and I was like second but I didn't win it so the project then lurched on reconfigured itself became something else eventually I got there I mean it's not dissimilar to way cinema happens film projects go through years of cycles of funding and fundraising to get to where they need to get to so they're, they're not that dissimilar in some ways when you're working in a particular way especially in a kind of a mixed multimedia way that i work where i'm trying to fund lots of different things and i don't have this very consistent practice that i can kind of bank on i think i'm hope that people understand my work from the approach that I take in making stuff rather than the output that I make because I do kind of chop and change what I make but the approach is still quite similar even the sculpture project I'm making for June has a bunch of historical kind of reference points that kind of are encapsulated somewhat in the object but they're more of a parallel universe as a way of understanding what that object is um, it's not necessarily legible in the object itself. It does something else, actually. But it's actually tapping into a multiple series of narratives that make the object interesting, and that's how a lot of contemporary art works. It's never just the thing itself. It's the, the stuff that surrounds it that makes it interesting as a discussion point. Yeah, and I, and I like the way you keep um, up, uh, bringing new works around the same kind of like uh, topic uh, as you start. All right. Thanks for your time, Alan. Uh, great to catch up. And, uh, thanks, Luca. Hopefully, you get a chance to collaborate again sometimes. Um, to know more about uh, Alan's work and catch up with his exhibition, check out the links in the episode description. Don't forget to find and subscribe to Carpe Diem on your favorite app and social media. We are on all the apps. Uh, direct links at the website carpedian.podbean.com and please leave a review and a comment and I hope you enjoy our chat today and until the next one ciao